The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am interviewing Dr. Brandon Bieber. He is a board-certified neurologist with subspecialty training in multiple sclerosis and other immunological diseases of the nervous system and spasticity. He is also the author of Resilience in the Face of Multiple Sclerosis, and he actually gives his book away free as long as you ask him on Twitter. So I will put his Twitter handle in the show notes. Dr. Bieber went to medical school at Drexel University College of Medicine. He did his residency at Los Angeles Medical Center and his fellowship at the University of Southern California. He currently practices in Los Angeles. In today's episode, we talk about two new groundbreaking therapies for people with progressive multiple sclerosis, ATA-188 and BTK inhibitors. They're both still in clinical trial, but they're looking very promising with ATA-188 actually showing improvement in those with progressive MS. Let's dive in. Dr. Beaver, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Gretchen. Of course. I have so many questions for you about ATA-188 and how that drug is completely different from other drugs that are currently available, as well as BTK inhibitors. And before we jump into that, is it okay if I ask you a question from my interview deck? Sure. Go ahead. All right. So your question is, what do you do when you want to get out of your own head? I like to just go for a jog, you know, on a cool winter night. That's how I kind of escape from the world and just relax. That's awesome. It's my and form for, of meditation. I love that. And you're in the LA area. So what is, what temperature does winter mean for you? Uh, you know, a cool 60, 65, not like where you're from, you know, if it's below 60, it's miserable. Everyone stays inside here. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, we we it's prefer between 72 and 77. That's optimal range in Los Angeles. Oh my gosh. We have maybe one month where that's the range. <laughs> I went to school in Philadelphia, so I understand that. There you go. Perfect. All right. So let's just dive in here. So can you tell our listeners First and foremost, what ATA-188 is, because I'm assuming not everyone has heard about it yet. Yeah, these new drugs that don't have a real marketable name always have weird random clusters of numbers and letters. Uh, so it's based on the idea that there is increasing evidence that the virus Epstein-Barr virus, the cause of mono, may be the cause of multiple sclerosis, or at least part of the cause of MS. So ATA-188, it's not this drug, it's not like a small molecule like remdesivir that treats COVID-19, it's actually an immune therapy. So it's this library of T cells that target the virus. 
So it's essentially an antiviral therapy, but it's actually an immune therapy. You know, now this class of treatments, immunotherapy is usually used to treat cancers, you know, like prostate cancer, for example. But what they do is they take healthy donors who have been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus and they take their T cells. And there's somewhat of a, a technical process involving something called leukophoresis. And then they expose those T cells to antigens or proteins from Epstein-Barr virus to kind of stimulate them and get them ready to attack. And then they infuse them into people with an Epstein-Barr virus-related disease, such as multiple sclerosis. They have to do one other thing where they match the HLA types, kind of like you would match an organ transplant, just to make sure it's safe and that the immune cells aren't going to attack the recipient. And then hopefully the drug kind of kills Epstein-Barr virus and helps with multiple sclerosis. Is this the first drug ever for Epstein-Barr virus, or are there others out there? Well, there are a lot of similar products. I'm not really familiar with all of them. For whatever reason, this one is kind of the one that's being geared towards multiple sclerosis. You know, Epstein-Barr virus is really common. Uh, about 95% of American adults have had it, whether or not they had symptoms or not, whether or not they had mono. And, you know, for most people, it really doesn't cause any problem. But from a, like a worldwide perspective, Epstein-Barr virus is a big deal. It's associated with certain cancers, for instance, Burkitt's lymphoma, which is more common in areas that have a lot of AIDS, like near the equator. It's associated with that cancer, certain forms of sarcoma. People getting organ transplant, they can get something called lymphoproliferative disease, where they get an activation of the immune system, and it can be a really big deal. So Epstein-Barr virus status is important for certain populations. But I'm not familiar with like the technicalities of the different products, but ATA-188 is the one that's being studied in multiple sclerosis. Gotcha. And this one is different from other disease-modifying therapies out there, first and foremost, as you mentioned, because it attacks the virus, but also because it goes into the brain. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there are some other small molecules that get into the central nervous system, like Tecfidera, but really all of our therapies essentially work on the immune system outside of the nervous system. And in a sense, we're kind of late to the game. We're treating the inflammation that's secondary to Epstein-Barr virus and a lot of other factors. We're sort of treating the endpoint of the injury to the nervous system. It'd be better if we could treat the underlying cause. Absolutely. So back in January was the most recent study that came out about MS and Epstein-Barr virus. And I don't know about you, but I had so many clients running to their neurologist's office to get tested for the antibodies of EBV. Now, if someone tests positive for the antibodies of EBV, how is that measured? Like, can one person be measured as, whoa, this is a ton of antibodies, whereas another person has just a few antibodies? Or how does that work? Well, that can be measured. I mean, most commercial assays are not going to measure that. They're not going to give you a titer. They do look at different antigens and they can see if it's a recent infection or a chronic infection. There's actually an older study that looked at sort of the level of the titer, and that did seem to correlate with risk of multiple sclerosis. But that's not something you can really get from most commercial assays. Now, you know, I would say right now, there's not necessarily any point to get tested for Epstein-Barr virus if you have MS. One, because, you know, I can tell you the result right now, it's going to be positive. And also, unless you're going to enroll in this clinical trial, then, you know, who cares? You're not going to do something different. Now, in this clinical trial, they're only going to treat people who actually have Epstein-Barr virus, because otherwise, what exactly is the point of the drug? But in the future, this could become more important. Absolutely. So theoretically, 
someone who has more titers for antibodies of EBV is the assumption that they might have better outcomes with ATA-188 versus someone with low titers, or is that not correlated? You know, it's hard to know. I mean, we don't know that. We know that people who actually get clinical mono, who actually have symptoms, you know, the kissing disease that makes you sleepy or glandular fever with swollen lymph glands, those people have an increased rate of MS, about double the risk. And so getting actual mono is sort of worse than just getting the virus. And as I said before, having high titers, which is kind of associated with higher viral activity, is associated with a greater risk of MS. So I would imagine that those people have more viral activity. Whether or not killing the virus is going to do something for MS, it's a little too early to say. Yeah, yeah, this is all still so new. So they just recently started a phase two clinical trial. Is that right? That's right. So there's a study, the Embold study. And one of my colleagues, her name is Dr. Annetta Langergould. She's recruiting to the trial. I'm supposedly the backup in- investigator. And so I'm going to you know, have some patients go into the study. We haven't actually started it yet, but we're going to very soon. It's been going on for a little while. And you know, I look forward to seeing some of the results and maybe I'll relay some of my anecdotal experiences. Yeah. And if anyone is interested in being a participant in that, they can just go to clinicaltrials.gov. Is that the right link to go to? Yeah. If you just put in embold trial, E-M-B-O-L-D trial into Google, it will come up. And if you kind of scroll down, you can see the different sites. And if you're interested and you meet the inclusion criteria and there's something close to you, you could definitely enroll. And not only are you getting a treatment that could be beneficial early, you're also sort of contributing to the science. I have a lot of admiration to people who participate in clinical trials because, you know, you are taking some risk, you know, who knows if it's going to work or not, Uh, but you know, it can come with great rewards too. Yeah. And I'll put that link in the name of the study in the show notes, if anyone is interested in looking into that. So another way that this is different from other medications, drugs out there is that it's specifically, at least right now, being tested in people with progressive MS. And the results have been super exciting. Can you share how the clinical trial is going and what results they're seeing? Well, I don't know what's going on in the phase two trial. That's all private right now. There was a phase one trial published and they had 25 people with progressive MS. One person dropped out, so there were 24 people. Some had secondary progressive MS, some had primary progressive MS. And they got this treatment, which is a once a year infusion. And they did an extension study, so some people got it up to four years. And what they reported is that nine of the 24 had some kind of improvement in disability at some point. And this was based on the EDSS or expanded disability status scale. And what they looked at is what's called confirmed disability improvement. And so for instance, you know, people can have a little bit of fluctuation in their symptoms. So if you improve a little bit and get worse, maybe it was just day-to-day variation, but if you improve and then stay improved at the next study visit, that's kind of more significant and nine people improved. Now, you know, some of them, it was a slight improvement. Some of them, it was a moderate improvement. And obviously many people didn't improve, but it's a signal that it could be helping. So, you know, I'm interested to see what the phase two results show. Yeah, I thought that was so exciting because I don't know of any other drugs that have been shown to actually improve progressive MS. Are there any others out there? 
Well, the outcome, CDI or confirmed disability improvement, is kind of like a newer outcome in clinical trials. And it has been reported in some of the more recent ones, like, for instance, the Oratorio study, the study of Ocrevus and primary progressive MS. And yeah, there are people with progressive MS who do improve, but it's not everyone. It's just some people. So it's a little hard to say if the drug worked or not, because there was no placebo group. So we'll have to wait and see. But I would say, you know, nine out of 24 improving is pretty good for progressive MS. Yeah, absolutely. And we also saw in that phase one trial that the higher dose yielded better results. Do you know if they're still playing around with the dose? Are they going to keep increasing it to see what is safe and how high to go? Or are they staying at where they've determined for the phase one trial? You caught me off guard there, and I have to look at the clinicaltrials.gov website. I did read it a while ago, but I believe they're sticking with the dose that was most effective in the phase one study, if I remember correctly. Okay, that's what I thought too, but I wasn't sure, so I thought I'd ask. Awesome. All right, so in terms of EDSS, I know that this is a really common classification system, but I also know that a lot of people are still a little confused on it. So can you explain a little bit about what that means in terms of this clinical trial? How is that improvement observed? Well, so the EDSS scale is kind of an objective scale to measure disability in people with multiple sclerosis. And so zero would be no disability whatsoever. You know, an EDSS of two or three would be fairly mild disability. EDSS four would be moderate disability. At EDSS six, a cane is needed to walk 100 meters. And at EDSS 6.5, a walker is required. And so some people improve from around an EDSS of six, so they needed a cane to walk to an EDSS of around 4, 4.5, where they could walk without a cane, but maybe they couldn't walk very long distances, maybe only four and or to 500 meters before having to rest. So that was the kind of improvement that people were having. But I would say, you know, that's pretty significant. Some people also improved on another outcome, which is time 25 foot walk, basically how long it took to walk 25 feet. And if you improve more than 20%, they thought that was clinically significant and some people improved more than 20%. That's definitely exciting. Do you think that, and this might be way in the future, but is this something that might be in combination with a potential remyelination medication or because it essentially stops the virus, could our bodies heal on its own? Well, my guess is for someone who's had MS for a long time, who has a lot of injury and a lot of disability they've had for a long time, you know, this is not going to reverse all of their symptoms, you know, maybe people could get better from kind of the recent injury that's occurring, but there may be some areas of the nervous system where there's not a lot of Epstein-Barr virus or active inflammation, there's just sort of injury to the myelin. So as you're hinting at, you know, we would need other things to help people. This is just kind of one aspect of the treatment of MS. You know, one thing that I think is potentially very exciting about it is even though they're studying it in progressive MS, arguably it would be more effective in relapsing MS. You know, if you could sort of treat Epstein-Barr virus early in the disease, when people have very low levels of disability, maybe that would prevent people from having problems down the line. And maybe it would even prevent people from needing other medications like immunosuppressants that probably have much greater risk than this drug. Yes, I thought that was really interesting that they purposely are not looking at relapsing MS right now, but they did say that they hope to in the future because people with progressive MS just don't have as many options. 
Yeah. And I think that's the reason they pursued this. You know, unfortunately, it's a business and they have to go where the business is. And with relapsing MS, a lot of people do very well and are very stable on their medications. They're not necessarily looking for something new, but some people with progressive multiple sclerosis, either they're not doing well on standard therapies, aren't good candidates for them or afraid of potential side effects. This could be a good alternative. Yeah. So switching gears now to BTK inhibitors. This is also somewhat new. A lot of people that I talk about this with have not heard of it before. Can you share what BTK inhibitors are? So Bruton's tyrosine kinase is a cell signaling pathway that's involved in various different metabolic pathways and different cells, but it turns out to be important in B lymphocyte maturation. So B cells are the cells that make antibodies, proteins that fight infections, but are also involved in inflammation and multiple sclerosis. They also do things like present antigen, take pieces of protein and show them to other immune cells. And it turns out they're sort of the mafia bosses of inflammation in multiple sclerosis, even though they're the minority of cells that we see in biopsies or autopsies of multiple sclerosis lesions. So all of the really high efficacy drugs in MS kill B cells, such as B cell depleters, Ocrevus, Rituximab, Casimta, and also drugs like Lemtrada and drugs that are used in hematopoietic stem cell transplant like cyclophosphamide. All of these drugs have one thing in common. They kill B cells. Now, the problem with these drugs is they also cause infections. And this has been particularly painful to us in the last few years, obviously, because of COVID. I mean, I probably personally have you know, maybe a hundred or so patients who have been hospitalized due to COVID in the last few years, not all of them on these drugs, but many of them on these drugs, some of them young, relatively healthy people too. So we certainly learned the hard way that these drugs can cause side effects. And so the idea of these Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors is they affect the cell signaling, but they don't deplete the cells. And so they're likely safer than B cell depleters like Ocrevus, and hopefully just change the regulation of the cells. Now, there are studies of multiple such agents, such as tolibrutinib, mesitinib, evobrutinib. And what I would say is my preliminary opinion on these drugs is they're probably safer than B-cell depleters, but a little bit less effective. So probably not quite as good as drugs like Ocrevus, but definitely a lot safer. It's hard to compare head-to-head without a head-to-head trial, but that's kind of where I would put this category of drugs right now. So I know a Dr. Aaron Boster mentioned to me that he felt very comfortable recruiting in these trials during the pandemic because he thought these drugs were a lot safer, unlikely to significantly increase the risk of infections. Wow. And BTK inhibitors are another class of drug that also goes into the brain as well, which others don't. Yeah. So a lot of these are smaller molecules. And so they can get central nervous system penetration. I don't think that's really how these drugs are working. I mean, I think they're working on the peripheral immune system. They're definitely in the category of drugs that work on the immune system, very different from ATA-188. Yeah. So why in these studies, I feel like they're making a big deal that it crosses the blood brain barrier and goes into the central nervous system. Does it make that much of a difference or is it just something that differs from one to the other? Well, it depends. So there's evidence that some of the inflammation in the central nervous system may be different from the inflammation in the peripheral nervous system. So the sort of classic model of multiple sclerosis is you have lymphocytes, B and T cells, that are sort of becoming activated, crossing the blood-brain barrier and causing inflammation. 
And so drugs like Tysabri blocks entry of those cells into the nervous system. And, you know, it's highly effective and it doesn't do anything in the brain. So obviously that works pretty well. Now, some people are getting worse, even though they're not having relapses or making new lesions on MRI, particularly older people with progressive multiple sclerosis, you know, they have so-called smoldering multiple sclerosis. There's some evidence that the inflammation that's in these people may be a little bit different. It may be caused by cells of the innate immune system, totally different than B and T cells, not affected by Tysabri or Ocrevus at all. And these are cells like microglia that are kind of having low level of inflammation. They don't cause big relapses. They don't cause big fluffy lesions on MRI, but they may be causing people to have sort of slow smoldering local injury. So it's thought that these brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors may have effects on those cells as well, not just the lymphocytes. Now, part of this is hype. Part of this may be real. I don't know. You know, I, I would say based on like the actual published studies, I think these drugs are probably less effective overall than B cell depleters, but maybe in this subgroup of people, you know, older people with smoldering MS, maybe they're more effective and safer. That's very possible, but I can't claim that's true. Right. And because this is another drug that is being tested in progressive MS as well and relapsing, right? Yes. And it could be effective for both. And of course, you know, my opinion is we have pretty good drugs for relapsing MS, so that's not as important. But if this drug were safe, low risk of serious infections and effective in progressive MS, I would say for that category of people, it really could be a blockbuster, but it's too early to say that I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm understanding the research that I've seen on BTK inhibitors so far, but what I've seen, it seems as though they're suggesting that BTK inhibitors could slow the progression of MS and potentially also assist with remyelination because it prepares our, the microenvironment of the brain so that remyelination would be possible. Is that true? Am I interpreting that correctly? People with multiple sclerosis get better. I mean, that's one of the great things about multiple sclerosis. You know, I have a lot of patients who have been in wheelchairs and are now walking or even running. You know, even people with progressive multiple sclerosis can get better. You know, I have patients who've never taken any medication with progressive MS who've had some improvement. And that is because we do naturally have some potential for remyelination. The cells that make myelin, the oligodendrocyte precursor cells, are there, sitting there in the central nervous system, and they're definitely capable of remyelination. When we do an MRI scan and a lesion looks bright on T2 sequences, but normal on T1 sequences, so-called shadow plaques, if we correlate that with autopsy studies, there's often significant remyelination. And some people have very impressively abnormal MRIs with T2 bright lesions everywhere, but they function really well, probably because they have really good remyelination. So people can remyelinate, people can get better. You know, maybe if we stop the inflammation, people will just kind of get better on their own. Is it the drug doing that? Most likely not. It's most likely you doing that, but who cares if you get better after taking the drug, you know, we can take the credit for it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Any type of improvement is always exciting, regardless of what's causing it. Absolutely. What are your thoughts and this is a really hard question, but what are your thoughts on timeline of ATA-188 and or BTK inhibitors? They're both in clinical trial phase two. Do you have any thoughts on when this might be available? Well, so ATA-188, you know, is pretty early on, you know, so 
probably two years to complete the trial and then maybe another year to review the data, submit to FDA approval. So if it works well, I mean, maybe it could be approved in like three to five years. There are several different Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Some of them could get approved like pretty soon, like within a year or two. I wouldn't be that surprised about that. But yeah, I think ATA-188, it's going to be a little bit longer. Gotcha. This has been so insightful. I appreciate all of your insights and expertise takes on these new medications. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your book? You have a book called Resilience in the Face of Multiple Sclerosis. What can they expect to learn in that book? So this is a book I wrote when I was inspired by some of my patients who have a lot of disability with MS, but live incredible, happy lives. And so half the book is my interviews of them and their life story and how they battle multiple sclerosis and thrive. And the other half of the book is just tips about how to be resilient in the face of adversity. And I talk about things like psychological studies and resilience and meditation and things that you can do. The book is free. If you want a free copy, just ask me on Twitter and I'll send you a link. Awesome. Yeah. I'll put your Twitter account in the show notes. So if anyone is wondering, just head to the show notes. And I think resilience is something that is so hard to get, but necessary when you have MS. So I think that hopefully the book will inspire a lot of people and help them feel empowered. I hope so too. Well, thank you again so much for being here with us. I appreciate all of your thoughts and insights and expertise. It's been great having you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.